Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Well, what are you doing this fine Easter weekend? Are you out with your family? Are you enjoying it? You know, that extra snow day that everybody got on Thursday certainly extended the weekend and I hope everybody is having a wonderful and safe uh, time and what a week, you know, what an incredible week in news. And yeah, we're going to talk a lot about real estate today. Uh, a couple of, you know, interesting topics, some things that are a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, of course, and that's when the government starts yanking down some budgets and starting telling people where they're going to spend our money. And, you know, we all sit there and say, well, why didn't they spend here? And maybe we'll get a little bit of a better take on the real estate aspect of it. I'm going to have Dave Butler from Butler Mortgage on later with me. And, um, of course, some interesting things in the news regarding what builders are going to have to do in the future as far as development, development charges, and, you know, where is the money actually going? Fortunately, I'm going to have a guest by the name of Joe Vaccaro, and he is CEO of Ontario Home Builders Association, and he's going to be joining, with, joining me uh, shortly. And, you know, one of the things that I think most people don't realize is how much builders actually do pay the government government when they are developing, you know, let's say a subdivision or any kind of high rise and the amount of money that actually gets contributed and where is the money going? And, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, we can explore a little bit more. But of course, the major news this week, um, you know, our uh, here at Simply Real Estate, our condolences go out to the Ford family uh, for the uh, loss, obviously, of Rob Ford this week. And then I'm not going to say my condolences go out to the Trudeau family for the, you know, the, <laughs> the, the budget that came down. But I, I, I got to tell you, I do have a little bit of a pet peeve with that. And, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that when we're talking with Dave Butler. Now, of course, one of the things that I, uh, I was on with Jerry Agar uh, earlier in the week and Jerry called me up and said, hey, listen, can we talk about this whole Conrad Black house, you know, it, uh, it was listed for $21 million, sold for $16 million. You know, what happened? And it's an interesting turn of events when something like this happens. So just to kind of, let me set the scenario for you. So you have an incredible piece of real estate, 6.6 .6 acres sitting in the bridal path. You know, the, a spectacular home. I mean, I don't know how many people need nine bedrooms and 15 bathrooms, but you know what? Obviously they did. And, you know, there, I have a theory. What you do is you, they only use actually three bedrooms at a time, but they only have to change the sheets every third week because they just kind of flop over to the next bedroom and toilets hey can you imagine you use one forget about it for a month I don't know but that's that's a lot of real estate and 21 million seems like an incredible price and then all of a sudden but they sold it for five million dollars less but there's some interesting facts to that and when I was reading the article you know one of the things that kind of jumped out at me was the fact that they were ready for a bid process through uh, Richie's Auction House, which is kind of like the premier place. If you're going to sell anything um, well, of like incredible value, um, it, you're, you're going to talk to Richie's, you know, huge for art, antiques. But now, you know, of course, they can do a lot more than that, and they have an incredible system in place. And so they were, of course, brought in to be able to do an auction for this particular property. So they got everybody together and the only way you could actually see the home is you had to release a financial statement that said you could afford $21 million. And believe it or not, the room was fairly full. There was quite a few people that actually have the ability to pay for a $21 million house. Now, 
Of course, they're going to build a bit of an attraction behind it. You know, let's throw out some really nice wine, some nice hors d'oeuvres, a little bit of conversation, a little bit, you know, it's kind of a little mix and mingling kind of effect. But they were set to do a bid. They were going to have an auction. And just before, I think it was about 20 minutes before they were going to call the auction to order, sure enough, they're told that, well, there has been another bid accepted, private deal, and thanks very much for showing up. Finish off your wine, enjoy the company, and we're not going to bid for it. Now, why would they do that? And then we find out that it went for $5 million less. Well, here's part of my rationale behind looking at this whole thing. And I know most of you are sitting there saying, yeah, but Todd, who cares? It's $16 million. It's Conrad Black, you know, the guy's, you know, mogul. You know, why, why do we bother? It's because of what an offer can represent. And this is one of the things that most people don't understand when selling a home. There's always something else. There's another story. In this story, it was said that he can stay in the home and he will have an opportunity to buy it back later. So he's not moving out of his house. What he did was pretty much, let me get some equity out. I'm going to put it back in my pocket. And then maybe later, I'll turn around and buy it back. But it sounds a little like Hugh Hefner because Hugh Hefner's um, you know, mandate on the Playboy Mansion is that he must be able to stay until he dies. So, hey, listen, give me all the money and I'm going to I'm going to be the premier resident here. But, you know, 20 years because he's going to live forever, you know, and 20 years they'll get the property, but they've got the Playboy Mansion. So, again, this would affect the value for sure, because now they can't actually move into it. And maybe somebody's sitting there saying, hey, I don't mind parking the money for a long time. If he decides to buy it back, he's going to have to buy it back at a profit to me. And this is why offers aren't as you know, clear cut as when you see a number. Again, when we see these multiple offers out there and, you know, a lot of people will turn around and say, hey, Todd, it, it's a multiple bid. There's 70 people bidding. Of course, it's going to go over this price. But you don't always know what else is involved in the offer. And the reason why this is kind of a big workaround was <clears throat> the other week I turned around and I had the question posed to every one of you, are realtors worth their money? Now, of course, if you turn around and say, well, it sold for $5 million less, I hope the guy didn't get his commission, but we don't know the true effect of the deal. So just maybe, just maybe in the right situation, realtors are definitely worth their money if they're negotiating some of those extenuating circumstances. And I think this is one of them for sure. There's more to that story than, than meets the eye. And of course, now we're starting to find out more about it. And yes, there's a lot of conditions in there and they were worth something to Mr. Black to have $5 million less. Now, my biggest comment would be if he had let the auction go, if they had turned around and let multiple bidders bid, he could have thrown out the caveat, hey, by the way, you're giving me $21 million, but I still get to live here he might have gotten a better deal. So again, for those of you out there thinking of, you know, if you just got one buyer and you're going to, you know, do a quiet deal, I suggest that you actually turn around and think about it for a second. Bring in more people. The more people you have that want your property, the better the chances are you're going to get exactly what you want. He wanted $21 million. He didn't get it, but he got the fact that he could stay in the property. If you want a certain price, if one person's going to pay it, probably more people will pay it. And if more people pay it, it means you're going to get more. So multiple offers are going to be a fact of life when you have a property that a lot of people want. Keep that in mind when hiring a realtor. Make sure they know how to negotiate multiple offers, how to position the multiple offers, and make sure you get what you want. That's the thing. You're the seller. You're in control. Make sure you get what you want.
Speaking of getting what you want, looks like Vancouver is having quite a run again this year. You know what? There's no steam coming out of that market. Now, again, we know Toronto is off to a great start. The month of March has been quite stellar, as February and January were. Now, when we take a look at Vancouver, though, it still continues to peak to the point where it has been named the number one city in the world for real estate increase in value. Now, again, it's not the most expensive city, but it is the number one city for increase in value. Up to 30% in 12 months in some areas, 30% increase. And this is why people are sitting there looking at it saying, it's a bubble, it's going to burst. Again, supply and demand. Bubbles don't burst when there's no supply and huge demand. Keep that in mind. Again, right now with our interest rates, the way they're going, I have to tell you, they're, they're going to be stable. Um, you know, I am going to talk about uh, talk to Dave Butler to see if there's any cautionary things that uh, we should be aware of, but I don't think so. At this point, you know, they mandated the new increase in your down payment when you're going north of five hundred thousand to a million, and that hasn't really taken anything out of the market. Those properties are still selling in that seven eight hundred thousand dollar range. People are just coming up with a little bit more equity. That's a positive. Now, again, one of the things that we need to focus on is we're coming into the spring market. This is it. Easter weekend, here we are, normally it's right after March break. For those of you in, you know, some of the private school systems, you had a two-week March break, you know, now you're set, you're ready to get going, everybody comes back, this is where houses start coming up for sale. If there's a time to buy, it's going to be in the next month where you're going to see the greatest number of homes come into the market and probably the biggest selection. Next, the month of April and May have always been the highest listing months in the marketplace. I don't think we're going to deviate from this, that from this year. I think for sure we're going to still get that. But ultimately, in the end, if you are a buyer, make sure you're out, you're qualified, you've met with your bank, your mortgage broker, whomever you're using, make sure you are set and ready to go. Because when you come in, sometimes if you do meet multiple offers, you're going to have to go with a firm offer. Now, remember, firm offers should not always be that firm. Do your home inspection prior to the offer. I'm going to tell you, do not buy a home without some form of home inspection. So if you know a deadline is seven days away, get the home inspector in immediately and get it done. You need to do this. You have to protect yourself and the, the finance company will much prefer to see a good home inspection when they're doing a mortgage. Other than that, you know what? It's been a pretty interesting week in the news We've got a lot to talk about today, but it's, I'm going to let the experts weigh in on this. As I mentioned, coming up after the break, I've got Joe Faccaro. He is CEO of the Ontario Home Builders Association. And Joe's going to talk to us about some of the stuff that's floating around with the Liberals, you know, that they're uh, looking at pushing up the amount of contribution that the builders are going to have to do. And on top of that, some of the legislation that we're going to have to be doing more affordable housing. How would you feel if some a builder in your neighborhood said, okay, now I have to build affordable housing right across from you because I'm mandated to do it? Do you want your neighborhood to go this route? Should affordable housing be mixed into all neighborhoods or will you prefer that they go somewhere else? We're going to talk again with Joe when we come back right after this. So stay with us. You're listening to Simply Real Estate and Todd C. Slater. I'll be right back. And welcome back. 
So earlier I'd promised you uh, we were going to bring on a professional to talk about what the government is proposing, both from a standpoint of increasing charges to building developers, as well as what are the chances of some affordable housing ending up in your neighborhood in the new developments? And so I'm going to bring in Joe Vaccaro. He is CEO of the Ontario Home Builders Association. And Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. The news has been... uh, really swollen up with a lot of things about developers doing work. You know, we talk a lot about the need, obviously, for some affordable housing. Uh, you know, the Liberals passed down a new budget this this past week as well. Um, what is your take? What is, what is actually happening out there? I mean, we get inundated with so many, you know, headlines, but we need to break it down and really figure out what is everybody trying to accomplish here? Well, I think, I think part of this conversation always starts with the reality check. 100,000 people every year make the GTA region their new home. And so the reality is that this is a growing region. We continue to welcome people here. And that is really driving the demand factor in terms of housing. Um, And so what we're seeing more and more from the housing industry perspective is a growing demand for all sorts of housing options. Um, But we're also seeing government respond to that um, with a lot of talk about housing affordability. But we're watching them take uh, action that more times than not, just leads to higher and higher government-imposed charges. And that's sort of the struggle that our members are dealing with, is how do we manage all of the government demands, whether it's for, um, for additional monies for transit um, or in terms of uh, you know, site-specific location decisions? How do you manage that government demand and also manage the consumer demand, which is real? And uh, if you walk around, uh, whether it's downtown Toronto or downtown Mississauga or Markham, uh, you can see those cranes in the sky. You can see that we are a growing, growing uh, community. Well, you know, one of the things, Joe, that, you know, we can recognize is the fact that ultimately in the end, it's both the developer and the consumer that are paying for these, you know, these levies, these extra taxes. And, of course, now one of the things that they're suggesting is that there needs to be a proportionate amount that is going to be designated towards more of the low-income housing. Can you can you kind of give us an idea what what as an association and what builders are actually going to be taxed with on this? Well, I mean, this is a bit of a challenge for us. The government has announced uh, that they're going to allow municipalities to use a new planning tool called inclusionary zoning. And this is something that uh, a number of American jurisdictions have been using. And basically what it does is it mandates that any new development, uh, a a portion of them, let's say 10%, uh, will have to be affordable units. And the challenge there is that, uh, as all things uh, we've seen, is when you transplant a program from a, another jurisdiction, if you don't recognize all the features of that program, um, the program just won't work. And so in the American situation, these programs are always supported by federal money, state money, uh, municipal rebates on things like development charges. And the reason why that's done is because you know, housing is not free. Uh, nothing in life is free. Uh, and the reality is the idea that developers, as part of their approval, are going to offer affordable units uh, at cost for free, that's not going to happen. Um, the cost of those units have to be picked up, and uh, more times than not, they'll be picked up um, through the existing uh, residents. So if you've got a 100-unit condominium and 10 of those units have to be provided as, uh, as affordable uh, units, um, the difference in cost, the difference in market cost, the difference in construction costs will get picked up by the other 90. So our concern is, as I think it should be for any consumer out there, our concern is going to be how do you create more affordable housing units without undermining the housing affordability for everyone else? 
Um, and so, as you said earlier, uh, government uh, comes up with new ideas, new policies, new uh, taxes and charges. The reality is that the developer uh, may be covering the cost at the front end, but on the back end, it finds its way into your unit cost. So the consumer always pays for these new ideas and new, pol- new policies. They always pay for these new taxes. And uh, the challenge for our members is how do you produce a new housing unit in the right location at a price point that consumers can actually afford? So, Joe, I guess one of the, for a little bit of clarity here then, so if we're talking about a 100-unit building and let's say that 10 units have to be allocated to a, you know, more of a lower-income, you know, uh, development, is this going to dissuade builders from going to go to the higher-end properties? Like, you know, it, it's kind of like you want, you want to mix the, you know, the establishment, and I understand that, you know, we shouldn't segregate low-income housing out to the, out to the sticks, but at the same time, is this going to deter people from buying, knowing that they could potentially have some low-income housing in the actual building that they want to live in? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And, and the reality is the government has made, the provincial government has made this announcement. And, uh, you know, what's backing this announcement is uh, the municipal request for this power. And so we're going to have to deal with municipalities on a local level as to try to figure out what does this mean? Um, there's been lots of talk in the New York example. There's been lots of talk in New York about the fact that a lot of these these projects that involve inclusionary zoning have what's called a poor door, where the building is basically segregated internally, where you'll have six stories of a 40-story building, and those six stories are basically a building within a building where those low-income individuals, those people who are buying those affordable units, um, enter through a separate door, have different amenities, um, interact with their own internal building, while the existing residents who bought market-priced housing, they have their own amenities, their own condo board, their own structure. It's the building in a building. And so a number of municipalities have asked the question, you know, is that one of the options on the table? And we don't have an answer for that yet. Um, as an industry, we're sitting here waiting for more clarity and direction from the government. You know, they've made the proclamation, and now we need to sit down and figure out what the policy actually looks like. In terms of the market reaction, um, that's quite a possibility. I mean, the reality is going to be that, uh, you know, just to pick on downtown Toronto, there'll be a lot of Toronto locations um, where the market price is one, uh, but now those new projects may require uh, 10% of those units to be, uh, you know, affordable, which really speaks to the low-income part of the, uh, of the uh, demographic. And as part of any public process, you know, ratepayers have a right to show up and voice their concerns about the building. And those concerns always cover everything from traffic, shadowing, and how it changes the character of the community. And so we'll have to see what that means in those public meetings and how ratepayers respond. Uh, as for how consumers respond, there are a whole bunch of internal consumer issues that have to be discussed. You know, how do condo boards function in this situation? How do the amenities function? Um, there are lots, lots of questions and lots of work for us to do to try to figure out how this works and how do we communicate to the marketplace. Yeah. How do we ensure that consumers understand the building they're buying and the rights they have as owners? Yep. So, you know, I when uh, Joe, we're going to go to a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about that from also a resale perspective. So, uh, folks, um, I've got Joe Vaccaro on the phone with me. For, he's the CEO of Ontario Home Builders Association. Stay with us. We're going to come right back. We're going to talk more about the idea of low-income housing coming into your neighbourhood when new developments go up. So stay with us. We'll be right back. 
and welcome back. So if you're just tuning in, I my special guest today actually is the CEO of the Ontario Home Builders Association, Mr. Joe Vaccaro. And just before the break, we were talking about a new government legislation that might be coming down that's going to require developers and builders actually have a component of low-income housing potentially in their buildings. And Joe, you just before the break, you and I were talking about the implication on this entire thing on both from an economic standpoint, you know, obviously the buying public, just to kind of reiterate, what exactly does the Ontario Home Builders Association do? Because I don't know if everybody knows what your actual, the function of it. Well, the Ontario Home Builders Association is the provincial voice of a network of 31 local associations. So in many communities across Ontario, you'll find uh, local home building associations in places like Toronto, in places like Durham, in places like Simcoe, in places like London, uh, Windsor and Ottawa. And so uh, those are local associations who work on local development and building issues. Uh, and our job at the provincial level is to represent uh, those members at the provincial legislature. So when the provincial government moves uh, new planning uh, legislation like inclusionary zoning uh, or building code changes or a whole host of provincially driven changes, it's our job to represent those, uh, those members at Queen's Park. Excellent. You know, and, and I don't know, and, and I'm going to just tell my listeners this, you know, this is a huge, huge important function that we have because, again, you can let the, you don't want the government just to, to make all the rules and regulations and kind of jam it down our throats. And I always think that, I'm not going to call you guys a bit of a watchdog, but you're definitely a pressure valve that is allowing developers to be able to develop and also do a bit more interpretation and control over what's being built. And if the government had a complete control over everything, you know, none of us would have, I, I think we'd all be left in a shoebox and, and they'd say everybody has to live the same way. So, um, you know, kudos to, to having an association like yourself out there. Um, I've worked with a lot of builders over the years. They have nothing but respect for, for the association. And I think it's very important that people do know that it's important for this association to be in place. So, Joe, just before the break, you and I were talking about the idea of, you know, having to put in... Um, some kind of low-income housing into developments, and then just off air, we were you know when we were speaking, one of the, my my concerns, and you know of course being you know here at Simply Real Estate, um, you know we 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 like to talk about real estate values, what the future should hold, but from a resale perspective, this could be very detrimental to people that are buying condominiums and have this part associated with their buildings. Well, I mean, I don't want to say the word detrimental per se, but I, it does have a market impact, I think, on the future resale market. Um, the reality is going to be is that uh, with, new, with these new projects coming forward and with a percentage of those units being uh, uh, affordable units and whatever sort of structure by which those affordable units are maintained, um, it will have an impact uh, on the resale side. And that impact really just speaks to disclosure and how the market responds to that, how consumers respond to that, will be interesting because you will have you will have buildings available which have you know been built without this requirement you have buildings that are going to be built with this requirement and consumers will have to value along with everything else they value when they purchase those units um, where they want to be and I think what's what's structurally important for people to think about moving forward is again from the condominium perspective those shared amenities those party rooms those swimming pools how are all these things going to work together um, and what are going to be the differences from a, you know, a pre-inclusionary zoning building to a inclusionary zoning building? How do those work? And so 
Consumer disclosure on this part of the equation will be incredibly important so that consumers understand what they're buying into, but also the access they're going to have to amenities in other you know, facility space. Yeah, and I think I think when we take a look at condominiums, um, you know, uh, as a company, the Simple Investor, we we manage a lot of condominiums, a lot of developments that are from a resale perspective, and one of the things that I think we can recognize is the fact that, you know, do the do who actually has the vote in the condominium? What kind of condominium fees are they being charged? Are they still being charged the proportionate amount based on the square footage? when you're dealing with this style. And so, again, that's one of those things that when, when we take a look at it, you know, is it going to be the best way to run a condominium when you have this? Or can they actually, as you mentioned down in the U.S., they actually segregate it out where, you know, with first so many floors is this, they act independently, and then the condominium acts everything else. So I just don't know if builders are going to want to do that, where they say the first two floors belong to this, X, and then the rest of the development is the condominium. So... What do you think? Well, I mean, and the reality is it won't be the builder's call. I mean, this is going to be a question of how the province structures the legislation and how the municipalities structure the legislation. So, I mean, one of the things, we, uh, one of the things we've been talking about is making sure that the government, you know, it's easy enough to point to New York. It's easy enough to point to Chicago and talk about how this power has worked to create affordable units in those cities. But you've got to, you've got to finish the play there. The reality is that those programs and their programs include federal rebates, state rebates, municipal rebates. They include a whole host of additional pieces that uh, make the project whole. And so part of that becomes, you know, looking to the provincial government and those municipalities and saying, okay, you want to bring this power up here? You want to put it into our system? You've got to finish the play. You've got to complete the picture here and bring the rest of those pieces forward. And so I think that's very important in terms of how this sort of rolls out. I mean, you know, the home building industry development is a highly regulated industry. Um, the government's got their fingers in all of these pies, and uh, they are going to be structuring how this all moves forward. The industry's job is going to be to digest what this all means, to raise to government the impact on the marketplace, to raise to government the impact on bringing housing supply on stream, to raise the impact on the consumers, and make sure when the government makes these decisions, they're not surprised by any unintended consequence. They should be aware of these things. And hopefully that dialogue with government um, can turn this into a much more positive outcome. Um, but we don't, just don't know where we are yet. Yep. So, you know, part of this is going to be how the politicians want to structure it. And that's our job at OHBA is to have that dialogue. And every meeting I have with the politicians always starts the same way. How's the market? <laughs> <laughs> and I always say, the market is strong. What are you going to do to it? <laughs> it's what we make of it. Yeah, yeah. what are you going to do to it now, right? <laughs> well, so. speak, speak, speaking of hands in the pie, just a, just a quick note. Um, you know, it looks like liberals want to hike charges to the condominium developers. Um, again, so, you know, just, just a quick note, if you can, you know, we, we talk about the share of the pie. They want, to, they want more. You know, they, they're afraid that if you're making money, then they need to make more. Um, what, what, what are the plans there? Well, I mean, the, the, the new push is for more residential development to pay more for transit. Um, and so from a fundamental principle perspective, as an association, as an industry, we all need transit. We value that transit investment. Um, the challenge has become very much the type of transit municipalities are trying to put in place, where they're putting it in place, uh, and what's it costing them. Um, and so we're looking at all sorts of transit projects, either funded by the province or being brought forward by municipalities, and we're asking those tough questions. We're saying, you know, why do you need a subway there? Why do you need an LRT there? Why won't bus service work? Um, and we're asking those questions. 
because at the end of the day, when they come back and they say, you know, we're going to add another $3,000 per unit uh, to build this transit, uh, the developers, the industry stands up and asks, I have to ask the tough questions. When is that transit going to get there? Why did you pick that transit? Because it's important for people to understand that that development charge is built right into the price of your unit. And what we like to remind you know, politicians at all levels is you've made a commitment to deliver a service now to that new home buyer. That's what you've done. And so if your commitment is to deliver that subway in year eight and you miss your mark, the developer has to hear the back end of it from a consumer who bought thinking it would be on a subway line saying, I bought this unit because I thought there'd be a subway here. And the developer will say that, that consumer, you have every right to be upset. Call your local counselor. <laughs> I mean, you have every right to be upset because you have paid for that service in your purchase price. And, and, you know, and both you and I know that based on what you're, you know, what developers are paying, you know, the, the government says they're allocating it, but the delays that are that have happened. And we noticed that with, with the growth of Peel with a lot of the schools. You know, the schools weren't being built as soon, and, you know, they want to make the, the builders fall on their sword. But the truth is, it's really the government that's lacking. Oh, absolutely. Whether it's schools or additional services or transit, I mean, they all get built into your development charge. And the expectation from that consumer is, you know, you're going to deliver that school on time. So when that new subdivision opens up in, uh, in Brampton, and there's that site that's been identified with a big sign on it saying future school site, and people move into that community, and they're sitting, waiting 10, 12, 15 years for that school to finally open. Yeah. They have a right to be frustrated. It, it, it gets quite frustrating. But unfortunately, the frustration always gets directed back at the uh, at the builder, and it, it's not the builder's call. Yeah. It's really the, the local school board and the counselor. Yep. Well, Joe, listen, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show. We'd love to have you come back, but we appreciate all your insight. And uh, thanks so much for joining us here at Simply Real Estate. Happy, uh, happy to join the, uh, the show today and happy to come back whenever you need me. Excellent. Thanks so much. Folks, we'll be right back with more, so stay tuned. And welcome back. Once again, I'd like to thank Joe Vaccaro, the CEO of Ontario Home Builders Association, for joining me just before the break there. Um, you, you know, folks, very interesting stuff. You need to know what's going on in your neighborhood. And if you see a new development and out of nowhere, all of a sudden we start pumping up some uh, some properties with the low-income housing that's been put into them, you need to know. And, of course, you can always write to your government official, have a chat, see what they think. But, listen, ultimately in the end, we know there's a need for it. We've got huge growth, and there are people that need to be able to move into areas. You just have to decide how it should be done, and is this the ba best course of action? In a development, you ha you're mandated to put so many units for it. Not saying that they all go awry and that they create problems or they bring down your value, but you have to decide what kind of neighborhood are you moving into or what you want developed around you. Hey, by the way, if you don't remember, coming up this Wednesday, we've got the simple seminar at the Mississauga Convention Center starting at 7 p.m. Go to thesimpleinvestor.com. Um, it's going to be a good one. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm only going to say this just as a, just as a little bit of a tease. We've got a lot in the works for new developments, and we're going to have a real busy spring and summer. So for those of you that want to be an investor of investment real estate, guess what? 
we've got some really cool things that are going to happen. We've got a lot that's going to be coming to market. And come to the seminar, you'll know a little bit more about us, what we do. Also, on top of that, know a little bit more about investing in real estate because it really is the best investment you can make for your future long-term wealth. I call it generational and ultimately, in the, in the end, you want to keep it simple and find out how simple it is. Go to thesimpleinvestor.com to register for the seminar, and I will see you this Wednesday there, and we'll be talking a lot about real estate. But, of course, I've got one of my favorite guests on now. He is Dave Butler from Butler Mortgage. How are you, Dave? I'm good. How are you doing, Todd? Good, thanks. Good. So, Dave, you know what? The budget got passed down this week. Yeah. Um, Mr. Trudeau threw out the first one, of course. You know, uh, $30 billion deficit, not sure, does that affect anything for our future with mortgages, and will it affect the rates in upcoming uh, sessions? Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, the more the more money they spend, uh, obviously, that, that can lead to some type of, an, you know, uh, a little extra inflation. A little extra inflation means that the rates could go up, but... You know, again, when you look at kind of how, you know, the extra money they are spending and you look at, you know, the growth that they're predicting, they're, you know, based on the deficit, it's still only 0.4% annual growth. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this is lower than the economists are predicted. And so, I, yeah, in my opinion, you know, the, generally speaking, the more you spend, you can create this inflation. But what they're saying is that where the money's going, it's not necessarily going to create that type of inflation that's going to cause the rates to really bloom up. So, Truthfully, we might still be staying in a holding pattern where, you know, in the in the twos and the threes, kind of in that range, we might see little spikes here and there in the fixed. But I don't see the bank again having to being able to make any moves with this kind of anticipated growth. No, you know, the job market is not getting any better. I don't. I didn't see. You know, they they they, they talked about unemployment going a little bit longer, which is good um, because you know people that if they kick them off or, or are not able to get enough in unemployment. Perhaps that's going to jeopardize, you know, some of the mortgage payments that are being made out in the Alberta province, let's say, because, you know, that, that's where we're obviously feeling a lot of the job loss. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's, it's really tough for the government to, you know, increase the rates when they've got central Canada essentially in a, in a huge recession, right? So, I mean, I, you know, we're all hearing about, uh, you know, the people in, the, in North Alberta there that are, you know, there's towns that are starting to turn into the old, you know, old style kind of ghost towns again. So not to say that that won't come, you know, come back. It's just, you know, in Alberta, they always say, hey, it, this is how it is. I mean, it's all up and down, up and down, up and down. And uh, Well, it's always been a feast and famine market. Absolutely. And yet now we take a look at, um, we look at, let's say, Vancouver. And, you know, because the market's going up and it's hot, you know, I wouldn't call it a feast market, though. In fact, I would. You know, looking at it, yes, we have increases in values, but you've really got to stre stretch your neck out there to be able to purchase in those marketplaces. Oh, my God. The foreign money out there has just caused those prices to just get astronomical. You know, we're seeing a little bit of that, obviously, in Toronto. I say a little bit, you know, in a weird way, because truthfully, in Vancouver, it's just gone bananas, right? So, um, you know, but certainly the foreign money has caused a lot of these fiscal and monetary policies uh, to not necessarily be as sound, uh, you know, and as controlling as we want them to. Now, according to some of the lenders out there, um, I think, you know, obviously the biggest one, they're looking at cracking down on the non-resident mortgages um, because I think they're getting a little bit leery of what's happening out there. Yep. Are we going to see most of the lenders kind of start to, to pull back on the foreign investor? Yeah, well, the truth is, 
Todd, they actually have. They've been doing. They've been. They've been trying to crack down on it for a while now. I think what happens is is uh, uh, when you set these barriers at thirty five percent down payment, you think that you're kind of creating a barrier to entry. But the truth is, with all the foreign money coming in, you know, the thirty five percent down is no problem for a lot of these people, and a lot of them are even buying cash for them. So I think it's you know as much as they're going to try to restrict that program and make it tougher and tougher and tougher for people to qualify. It's going to be very tough to still get rid of the people that have you. When you have that large of a down payment, maybe it doesn't get done at a bank, but someone's going to do that mortgage, right? Well, I was, go- I was going to say, there's got to be second-tier mortgages that can be done. And yep. when people look at equity, and that's really what we're talking about, when people come up with 35 and 40% down, we're, t- we're talking pure equity. And from a, from a financial position, most lenders would look at it and say, look, you're going to pay our rates that we're charging you. Mm-hmm. You're going to pay our fees. And on top of that... You know, we've got enough equity sitting in this property. If you do, you know, uh, you know, default, then we've got plenty of recourse to to regain what we need. Absolutely, that's hundred percent. I mean, what lender really in their right mind? What your secondary type of lender, or you know, non institutional lender, or even some of the B institutional lenders, who would not want to take that deal? based on the loan-to-value uh, and based on the fact that they're, you know, as long as there's not a humongous market crash, they will get their money back even in the event of a power of sale. So it's, it's, it's tough to really restrict them too much, and that's the problem with foreign money because, you know, when, when you have our dollar going down like it has, that just makes, the, obviously, the foreign money even that much more expensive uh, or that much more valuable. So they can now come here and be able to still purchase even more because our dollar's down. So it's, it's, it's going to be tough to that. So, yeah. so the real question then is: is it is it good for for the actual real estate industry, or is it bad? You know, I've always looked at it as a positive. Now, I know a lot of people hate it when I say that because you know when I analyze real estate, I always have to look at values. Mm-hmm. We have to understand what people are doing. These people aren't coming in to flip. In fact, most of these homes, once they end up buying them, they hang on to them. Yep. You know, we see a lot of that in the Toronto marketplace. We know a lot of people will send their family over for an education because we've got some of the top universities now in the world. Yep. People will come here, so they're not doing this as a flip. They're simply doing this as an acquisition because they're putting their money here as an investment as opposed to somewhere else in the world because, you know, they deem Canada to be a good investment for real estate, good or bad. Uh, indifferent really is me. I mean, I see the good points as well. I mean, just like yourself, I mean, more money coming into our country is not a bad thing. That is just not, I don't see that being a humongous negative. And obviously, if we have uh, overseas money coming in uh, and they're, they're bringing their families here, and you're right, they're staying here at certain times and they have family that maybe grows up here, these are, these are people that we want as part of our Canadian economy. Obviously, the bad side would be if I'm at the time buying a home, that I would you know, certainly be discouraged or maybe be upset with all that foreign money driving these prices up. But at the end of the day, that's pretty much the main negative that I see is when you're buying a home. But if you're sitting there owning and you've got all this foreign money coming in and you have no plans to say sell or buy and you're just sitting on your equity in your home, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, the foreign money coming in, because all it's doing is creating more value in your home. You know, one of, one of the things, instead of limiting people from coming in, one of the things I, I had suggested, and, and I think we talked about, I, I didn't talk about it with you, but about a year ago I, I brought this up, and, and I always challenge, you know, any, any government official that wants to call into the show, you know, please do so. Um, but <laughs> one of the things I think that they should do is that if we found that, that foreign investors were flipping properties for profit, then raise their tax rate on it. Absolutely. So, like, raise 
raise their capital gains rate, if they did that, then it'll deter people from flipping the properties, right? Just, just for, for straight 100%. investment profit. But, you know, either create residency or create a family that's going to be resident here and do it. Because, I mean, we've got enough people immigrating here into Canada that we could, you know, we should allow foreign investment if they're setting themselves up for two years from now to move into town. So be it. Allow it. But if you're going to come and use us, then you're going to pay the piper. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the truth is there should be some type of tax task force that is out there looking for, you know, these people that are, you know, essentially they don't have SIN numbers, they're buying properties, they're even buying them for cash, doing a flip, and then they're just taking off with the money. And I mean, the truth is, is if they're not paying taxes on that and they're just using our country, that's a terrible thing to do. So I think the smart, I mean, the truth is we saw it happen in the Toronto condo market. We saw a bit of a task force drummed up by Revenue Canada to try to catch these and set up people that were avoiding uh, paying any type of uh, taxes through assignments and whatnot. So, I mean, at the end of the day, Let's let's put a task force together that's truly going to go and find these people that are taking advantage of of our Canadian land and taking advantage of our of our our, our industry and our economy. Why not just pay the taxes on it? Now, would that slow down foreign investment? I don't know. Hopefully, I don't think so, especially with the way the dollar is going. So, well, I think I think it'll slow it down a little from the flipping aspect, but I don't think it'll flip it down from the purchasing aspect. No, I don't so, think so either. So I think, I think I, you know again I think uh, you know we we haven't had any punch up in the rate right now. I think that we can we're going to have to wait for the budget to settle down into the you know the marketplace Absolutely. and i think we'll get a little better read on what's going on so dave hey, listen always a pleasure to have you on thank, thank you, you so much um best thing for our listeners to get you at is butlermortgage.ca is that right uh you got butlermortgages.com butlermortgage.ca dave butler.ca or you can even call in at one 684 excellent thanks always a pleasure thanks todd take care All right, folks, so that was Dave Butler from Butler Mortgage. Always a pleasure to chat with him. You know what? I think rates for the spring market are, I think they're going to get a little bit more competitive. Keep your eye on it. Talk to, you know, a professional like Dave Butler from Butler Mortgage. You know, get your rates locked in. They can stay on top of it when rates move. Of course, uh, then you want to take advantage of it. So listen, you know what? It's been an interesting week. Of course, next week we've got more you got to stay tuned at 4 p.m. next Saturday. I'll be back. And for all of us here at Simply Real Estate, thank you for tuning in. Have a safe and happy holiday weekend. And I'll talk to you next week.